You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. Welcome to week nine. Today's teaching is on Exodus 15, 1 through 21. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, ladies. It's hard to believe that we've reached the end of our Exodus study and just have one more week together. Um, last week, Chris, Chris walked us through the narrative of God's miraculous deliverance of his people out of Egypt. And today we will look at the celebration of that event in chapter 15, the first 21 verses, the Song of Moses. But first, let's pray. Sovereign Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit that guides us into the truth. Please focus our minds now to receive what you have for us to hear. And we pray all this in your precious son, our savior's name, Jesus, amen. So Exodus 15, one through 21, which you studied for this week is referred to as the song of Moses. And it's actually the first song in the Bible. As stated in your homework, it is a response of praise for the Lord's deliverance. It can be divided into two parts, the first 12 verses being more historical in nature, and then the second half being hopeful as it looks to the future. One commentary pointed out that it also could be viewed as being divided into three parts. The first, verses one through three, focusing on who God is, our strength, song, salvation, God of our fathers and our own, a man of war. The second section, the middle, beginning with verse four, highlights what God does to his enemies, shatters, overthrows, consumes at the power of his right hand. And the third section of the song, revealing what God did and will do for his people, purchased, leads them forth, guides them in strength, and plants them in the place he has prepared for them under his eternal reign. The Bible also includes other songs of Moses, which we won't take the time to really look into now. I will read part of the third one, which you actually looked at in your homework, the one in Revelation. Deuteronomy 32, 1 through 44 is a song of Moses. And actually on the PowerPoint is the verse 30 from the previous chapter, 31, which introduces the song. Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. I encourage you on your own to read Deuteronomy 32, 1 through 44, which is the actual song. Moses delivers this when he's 120 years old. The Lord has told him that he is dying soon, and Moses knows he will not cross the Jordan River into the promised land. Therefore, he is commissioning Joshua as the next leader of the Israelites. In, in 3119, the Lord tells him to write this song. And in verse 3122, it says that Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the people of Israel. Psalm 90 is also referred to as a song of Moses. And again, I encourage you to read that on your own. We won't take the time to look at it now. And then Revelation 15, verses three through four that you looked up in your homework. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God and the song of the lamb, saying, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the almighty. Just and true are your ways, O king of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. 
So chapter 15 of Exodus begins by saying, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord. Note that they sang to the Lord. They did not thank Moses or praise him for leading them out. It is not the pastor or the president or any other earthly leader that we should look to for our protection and salvation. It is the Lord alone who should be the object of our praise and honor and hope. The last time I taught, I highlighted how God said, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. Well, God not only wants us to serve him in the wilderness, but to worship him there also. The wilderness can be difficult and unpleasant. The wilderness can be boring and mundane. I have no doubt that each of us has at least at one point spent time in the wilderness. Do we still worship God sincerely and wholeheartedly during that season? Or do we wait to praise him until we've been led out of the wilderness into the promised land? The deepest worship often comes when we least feel like it. It is a worship of the will. Hebrews 13:15 says, "Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name." I love the author's wording, a sacrifice of praise. Notice that he did not say let us offer up a feeling of praise. The Israelites did not wait until they reached the promised land to sing praise to the Lord for what he had done. We sing to the Lord, we worship the Lord, we praise the Lord because of who he is. He is always worthy of all praise and honor, even when we are still in the midst of the wilderness. He has delivered us from slavery to sin and from the death we deserve. Even when still deep in trial, we can, we should offer a song of praise to him. In the beginning, I referred to the song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. Can you think of anyone who wanted to enter the promised land more than Moses? He waited all those years, leading the people, interceding on their behalf before the Lord, longing for the time to cross into the land God had promised. Imagine how he was feeling. God has told him that he will soon die and that he will not cross the Jordan will not enter that promised land. And yet, what does Moses do when God tells him to write the song? I mentioned it earlier. In verse 32 or 22, it says that very day he writes the song and teaches it to the sons of Israel. While he was in the wilderness, knowing he would die there, Moses wrote these words. Deuteronomy 32, 3 through 4. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he, written from the midst of the wilderness. After the Last Supper and after Jesus has told his disciples that one of them will betray him, before they head to the Garden of Gethsemane, Mark 14, 26 says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. 
Jesus knew he was entering an intense time of great suffering, a wilderness, and he chose to sing a hymn. We also have a great example when Paul and Silas are in prison. And what do they do? They sing. Acts 16.25 states, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. In fact, the story goes on to say that the jailer even asks them, what must I do to be saved? Ladies, you will have a powerful witness when you sing to the Lord in the midst of the wilderness. What a way to declare to those around you that there is no one like God. Verse 2 of chapter 15 says, The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. I hope the word my jumped out at you. He is not just the in a generic distant way. It is personal. My strength. The Lord is our protector and sustainer. My song. The Lord is our joy and delight. My salvation. The Lord is our redeemer, our deliverer. We see these descriptions throughout the scriptures. Psalm 118.14, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Isaiah 12.2, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. An author of a commentary I read stated, that those who have God for their strength will have him for their song. And the people to whom Jehovah has become their salvation will exalt his name. Dear friends, do you know him as your personal protector, your joy, your redeemer, your strength, your song, your salvation? I once heard a pastor say that the height of our worship flows from the depth of our theology. He truly is all of those things. Pray to him as such. Praise him for being such. And I just want to quickly contrast verses 1 and 2 with verse 9, which you did fill out a chart in your homework and answer a question. How God's people, including even the leader that God had chosen, Moses, sing to the Lord they acknowledge it is the Lord who has triumphed gloriously. He is the one who saved. Yet you looked at verse 9 and what the world believes. I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. As a side note, don't you love how it's like, oh yeah, well with a blast of God's nostrils, the waters piled up and the flood stood in a heap. It's tempting for us to look at that comparison and say, how could the Egyptians be so foolishly arrogant? They didn't stand a chance against God. They had just witnessed his incredible power through all those signs and wonders. How could they put their confidence in themselves? And yet, human nature in all of us, how Christy pointed out a couple weeks ago that we have too high a view of humanity. We tend to think that not only are we better than we truly are, but also that we are more capable and in greater control than we truly are. I will, I will, I will, my desire. Clearly God knew our tendency, and that is why we see over and over again in his word 
that you may know there is none like me. I and I alone am the Lord. In verse 6, we see the emphasis on the Lord's right hand. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And again in verse 12, you stretched out your right hand. You filled in right hand three times in your homework. We could do an entire study on just the right hand or right arm of God. There are dozens of verses, both in the Old Testament referencing the right hand of God and the New Testament regarding Jesus and his permanent place where he is seated. We will look at several verses for both. The right hand or arm of the Lord is used to accomplish God's deliverance and also to carry out his judgment. The right hand represents strength and authority and power. It is often used as a metaphor for the omnipotence of God. It is the right hand that is laid on a person for blessing. In the court of law, it is the right hand someone raises when they take an oath. As I was researching the significance of the right hand, I found something really interesting, which I did not know. In the Urban Dictionary, actually I didn't even know there was an Urban Dictionary, um, right hand means, and I quote, a person you can count on through hard times and good times. They are there to hold you up and will always support you. Let me read, and you will also see on the PowerPoint just a few verses describing the right hand of God. Psalm 60, verse 5, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. Psalm 98, 1, oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Psalm 118.16, the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. Isaiah 48.13, my hand laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. Next, we'll look at several verses in the New Testament clearly stating that Jesus sits at the right hand of God, which means he is the power of God in accomplishing salvation to those who believe and judgment to those who reject. It is the place of honor and status and affirms that Jesus has equal status with the Father. As a side note, also key in on the fact that Jesus sits at the right hand of God. He is the only priest to sit. Prior to Jesus, the high priest, when they were serving in the tabernacle or the temple in the presence of God, stood. I wish I had time to read all of the references. I encourage you on your own to do a search and look at all the verses about Jesus being at the right hand of God the Father. It is powerful. Matthew 26, 64, Jesus is before Caiaphas in the council, and Caiaphas is questioning him if he is the Christ. And Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Ephesians 1, 19b through 20, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Hebrews 1, 3, in describing Jesus Christ, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. 
and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 1 Peter 3:22. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Isn't it just simply amazing how Jesus Christ is woven throughout the entire Old Testament? How incredibly blessed we are who live on this side of the cross to see the perfect fulfillment of God's plan, even his right hand. Verse 11 of Exodus 15 acknowledges that no one is like the Lord. He and he alone is majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, and doing wonders. You define several of the words. Then in verse 13, it states, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The Hebrew word for steadfast love is hesed, which is spelled C-H-E-S-E-D. It is a love of the will, of devotion. Some other synonyms are faithfulness, favor, kindness, loyalty, unchanging love. What comfort to know that the God of the universe, Yahweh, Jehovah, loves us with that type of love. And the next few verses describe how he has guided the people he loves. The Israelites, yes, but also you and me, by his strength to his holy abode. The people he has purchased by the blood of the lamb, it says he will bring them in and plant them on his own mountain. Another translation is the mountain of his inheritance. Did you note that he will not just place us there, but he will plant us? If you just took a plant and kind of took it out of its pot and just tossed it on top of your yard, it would look pretty for a time, but it would not thrive or grow. But if you dig a hole and plant it in the ground, it can take root, become permanent, and bear fruit. 2 Samuel 7.10 says, And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Jeremiah 32.41 states, I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. John 14, 1 through 3, Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Again, we see Jesus as the perfect fulfillment of God's plan from the start, and we will dwell with him. God has planted us. We are his permanently. Isaiah 49, 16, one of my favorite verses says, Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. He desires that we would bear fruit for him 
to declare his glory that all may know. And then verse 18, and I imagine this as the booming refrain, the Lord will reign forever and ever. This is the first time this verb is used, to reign. God is king and he is establishing his kingdom, a permanent one that will never be destroyed or even shaken. The people see that when they say the Lord will reign. They just saw the destruction of Pharaoh's army and the defeat of his power. This is now introducing a bigger battle, the kingdom of God versus kingdom of the world. And that battle rages today. And today we too can declare like the Israelites that the Lord has, continues to, and always will reign. His kingdom will never end nor be shaken. What else in life can we say that about? What else in our life can never be shaken? Our health, our finances, our relationships, our attitudes, our government, only God's kingdom. And we have been planted in that unshakable kingdom because we are covered by the blood of the lamb, the perfect lamb without spot or blemish that satisfied the wrath of God for all time. Verse 20 says, Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. During the biblical times, it was customary that women would welcome victorious soldiers returning from battle with songs and dance. 1 Samuel 18, 6 through 7 describes, As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. We see women fulfilling significant roles at the beginning of our study of Exodus, when the midwives feared God more than they feared Pharaoh and refused to kill the baby boys being born. And now at the end of the study, we see the women joining Miriam and singing praise to the Lord. And just as we have seen the theme of saved from, saved to throughout this entire study, we see it encapsulated in these 21 verses. God saved his people from the enemy by defeating them and delivering his people. And he saved them to dwell in his abode, on his mountain, in the sanctuary he has established with him. This song celebrates what God did in his miraculous deliverance but it also looks to the future with optimism, anticipating the settlement of Israel into the promised land, dwelling with God. As we've said before, God's people were set free for a purpose. Ladies, in a minute, I'm going to ask you all to stand and we're gonna to read together several verses that will be on the screen taken from the Song of Moses. And you ladies listening virtually, I encourage you to do the same. Stand in your living room, your kitchen, and say it out loud. I hope you can say these words sincerely and heartfelt. But I also realize that for some of you who may be in the wilderness right now, these words may be difficult to truly believe and nearly impossible to feel. Perhaps your weakness is clouding his strength. Maybe your heart is too broken to sing a song. 
Maybe you can't see any glorious deeds or wonders in your life right now. Maybe you are not feeling his steadfast love. Dear friends, say these words anyway and cry to the Lord. And the Lord will say back to you, I have surely seen your affliction. I have heard your cry. I know your suffering and I have come to deliver you. Imagine how the Israelites felt when they saw the Red Sea before them and knew the enemy was coming from behind. Surely they struggled to feel any hope in that situation. And yet, and yet, God made a way for them, even on dry ground. I want to take just a moment. Chris talked last week about the dry ground and the miracle it was, considering it had been covered by water, and you'd think it'd be muddy. But I just want to highlight that again. One of my favorite Old Testament stories, and not just because their names are so fun to say, but it's in Daniel 3, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Not only did God deliver them from the fiery furnace, but they had no burns on their bodies, no hair singed, their clothes were intact, and they did not even smell like smoke. Only God, only God can part the sea and have the ground underneath be dry for his precious people. He has redeemed you. He will guide you in his strength. His love for you, precious daughter, is steadfast. He will deliver you out of the wilderness according to his perfect timing and his sovereign will and his great love. Our part is to sing praise to his name, to hold our peace and trust, to serve, to obey, to worship, and to declare around us there is none like him. So even if you are facing the Red Sea right now and the enemy is closing in on you, or even if you are just exhausted from wandering in the wilderness, please stand and let us declare this together. From Exodus 15, beginning with verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Verse 18, the Lord will reign forever and ever.